Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Tim Welsh. Tim is the Vice Chair of Consumer and Business Banking for U.S. Bank, the fifth largest bank in the United States. He is also a board member for Upside Foods, a developer of cultured meats. Prior to these roles, Tim was a senior partner with McKinsey, where he worked for an impressive 29 years. Tim's volunteer experience is at least as impressive as his for-profit work, and he served as a board member for many of the Minneapolis area's most well-known nonprofits, as well as for national organizations such as Catholic Charities and in an advisory capacity for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's been honored on multiple occasions, including by Twin Cities Business, the United Way, and Catholic Charities. And Minneapolis even honored him with a Tim Welsh Day in 2006. Tim earned his undergraduate degree in social studies from Harvard University, and he also has an MBA from the Harvard Business School. He lives in the Minneapolis area. Tim, welcome. It's really an honor to have you on the show. I appreciate you making the time for it. Well, Jared, great to be with you. It's really great to reconnect, and I'm delighted that you're doing this kind of work. I think it's really important. Yeah, I agree. And it's something, as we were talking about before we started recording, that I have a lot of passion for. So I put time into it as much as I can. Let's start with your current role. Describe for our audience what it's all about. Thanks. So I'm responsible for what we call consumer and business banking at U.S. Bank. For your audience, U.S. Bank is the fifth largest bank in the country. We're a national bank with branches in about 26 states. My team is about 25,000 people or so who do all the things that consumers think about, mortgages, auto loans, stuff like that, plus similar kinds of credits and deposits for small businesses. You were at McKinsey for a really long time, 27 years, I think you'd mentioned. What prompted you to jump over to U.S. Bank after so much time with McKinsey? Well, I think it's important to realize, at least in my experience, Jared, this was two different decisions. The first decision was to leave McKinsey, and that was a very hard decision. I had grown up at the firm. To this day, many of my dearest friends are people that I have known from McKinsey. And so that's a difficult thing to do. But I had the privilege of finding an amazing group of clients to work with over many years. And at some point, you sort of realize that what you came to do at that institution, which I came, and happy to share the stories later, but I came to help my clients. That's why I wanted to be at McKinsey. And I found an incredible group of clients over time that I really got enormous joy from helping. And then at some point, that kind of runs its course. And it was time to spend more time in Minneapolis, more time particularly with my kids as they were growing up. And so that was the first decision. The second decision was, what am I going to do next? And we may come to it, but I do a lot of community stuff. I'm very involved in the community. 
And I could easily imagine doing lots of that kind of community stuff. But then I was fortunate enough where a great institution, an organization that I had the privilege of getting to know over a long period of time, there was an opportunity to join. And I only joined because U.S. Bank is a purpose-driven organization whose purpose aligns with what I'm trying to do. My central purpose is to help as many people as possible. And U.S. Bank, every time I turn on my computer, it says, we invest our hearts and minds to power human potential. That's a fancy way of saying we're trying to help as many people as we can. And so the alignment of my personal view of what I'm trying to do in life, my own sense of purpose, and the bank's view was the perfect alignment. So it wasn't like I was out there looking for lots of jobs. I needed to, I decided it was time to leave. And then I decided, well, if I'm going to do anything other than my community group, community work, I want to do it at a place that has the same sense of purpose that I personally think is important. You're working in retail banking, right? As you said, consumer mm-hmm. business banking. I mean, you're very much, retail banks are a fixture in the communities that they're in. And so obviously there's a strong sense of purpose. I'm curious to get your view on how the industry is changing. I mean, the basic premise of people make deposits, people take loans, businesses do the same. You kind of manage in between. That part's all the same, but just the changes around bank branches or lack of bank branches and like banking and just everything else that's changed. What are the things that are sort of exciting you about where the banking industry is going? First of all, I would pick up on your point that banking is really important in people's lives, right? There is almost nothing that you can do that doesn't involve money. Now, to be clear, you can do some really important things like hug your spouse, hug your kids. Those things don't involve money. Those are really important to do. But almost everything else involves money in some form. So it's really critical. And Jared, one of the things I've certainly learned in this role is that very few consumers wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to spend time on banking today. And very few small business owners say, boy, I started a small business because I love banking. They started a small business because they love making pasta or whatever it is that they're doing. And we have this incredible opportunity to allow families and businesses to do the things that they love, send their kids to college, go to Disney World, grow the business, open a second location, whatever it is. We have the opportunity to do that in a way which makes their life easy so that they can live their life and we can help them with all the things that we're good at and are necessary for them, but they don't want to spend time on. So the way we try to do that is we try to, first of all, have great digital tools. Because look, if you're going to do, you're going to have to do something you don't enjoy, you want it to be simple, you want it to be easy, you want to push a couple of buttons and have it be done, right? You got to have great tools. And you got to have, when you need it, a person who you can count on to explain to you whatever it is, buying a house, getting a loan for the new building for your business, whatever. So we're trying to power human potential through this combination of digital plus human. And I think that is a fascinating journey to be on because more and more what we're trying to do is be able to help our families articulate their goals, help our businesses figure out how they're trying to grow. And then we take care of everything for them in some kind of digital plus human way. I think we're at the pretty early innings of what I think is a very exciting new dimension for retail banking. My hope is that people around the country and hopefully around the world are better off because we're able to help them in new ways. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, 
the conveniences that are now built into the way that banking operates. I think about when I was a kid and probably when you were a kid, I mean, my dad used to go to the bank every Saturday. He'd deposit checks, he'd get out cash, he'd deposit his paycheck. And you think about how much of that has changed now. And we walk around with apps on our phone and that's how we move money, right? Whether it's a banking app or a payment app or whatever. And so it'll be interesting to see how it continues to unfold and that sort of balance between the online and the person delivered service and the physical branches and everything else. So you lead a big organization. You said 25,000 people, which is a mammoth organization. What is your approach to leading that organization? Like what kind of leader do you aspire to be in leading such a big group? Well, the first thing I think about is that my job is to make all of those other people wildly successful in helping our clients, right? I mean, that, so that's my whole mentality. So I only am successful if those 25,000 people feel like they are fulfilled and finding meaning and able to do their job in support of our clients, right? That's the only reason my job exists. So I actually think this is directly connected back to what we touched on earlier, JR, which is sense starting with a sense of purpose. I talk about this incessantly, which is we want our teams to wake up every morning knowing that their job is to help power human potential. And we talk about that in three ways. Power the potential of our clients, consumers and small businesses. Power the potential of our colleagues, because we can only help our clients if we are working together to keep learning and growing. And then critically for any bank, powering the potential of our communities, because we will only thrive if the communities are thriving. So we talk about this a lot, JR, and one of the real joys of my role is to be able to hear stories where our bankers, in whatever language they choose to use, some say power potential, some say, I just had this great way to help a client, whatever it is, where they have recognized that they made a difference in the lives of somebody else. They helped make somebody else's life better in some way. And they found joy and meaning in that, right? Because if they find joy and meaning in those moments, then they're going to keep wanting to do it and they'll get better and better in doing. So part of what I feel like a big part of my job is to help all those people be successful, to connect their personal sense of purpose and meaning with what we're trying to do as an organization. And when that happens, it's magic. I just love to hear the stories that they share with me, that they share with one another about how they've been able to do it. And I also love when they share those stories with people who are not quite as client facing, because those people who aren't client-facing play such a critical role in helping all of those who are on the front lines with clients, helping them succeed. So we have to show that connection between what they're doing every day and how our frontline teams are able to power the potential of our clients. I guess how you think about leadership translate into the kind of culture that you're trying to create. I mean, I certainly pick up from your last answer. You want people to be customer-focused and purpose-driven, but are there other attributes that are really important in terms of the culture that you want to foster in in your part of the organization or at U- or in U.S. Bank more generally? Yes, very much. So the first is this sense of purpose around serving clients, right? But there's also, we talked about powering the potential of our clients, powering the potential of our colleagues, and I'll come back to that in a second, and then communities. So on our colleagues, it's really important that we create a culture of continuous learning and development all of us constantly learning. And in order for us to do that, 
We need to create an environment where people, for example, understand their strengths and they understand the strengths of the people around them so that they can leverage their own strengths and nurture those of people around them. We need to create an environment of generosity. I'm a big fan of Adam Grant and give and take and that kind of concept. We need to have this learning growth mindset, the Carol Dweck work, right? right? So all of those notions are really important. We talk about that stuff a lot, the sense of purpose and those things. So oh, you got to have a learning environment. And then a critical part of that is you can't live in fear. You got to be willing to make mistakes because in a rapidly changing world, we're all going to try things. We make mistakes. That's normal part of learning, right? So it's easy for us to spend and for organizations to get caught up in fear. I'm trying to reduce as much fear as possible so that people can try things, be their best self, all of that, and constantly learn and grow and help others learn and grow. So that's a critical part of the culture as well. How does that translate into what you look for when you're hiring? A lot of different elements of that. So first of all, we absolutely want people who have their own sense of purpose aligned with ours, that we don't use different words. Secondly, we do ask about what are, tell us some examples of things where haven't gone your way. How'd you learn from them? What, you know, how did people respond around you? Or you, did you have some resiliency in those kinds of situations? I think it also is, this is one of these things where people say, well, does that mean everybody has to be nice? No, this is not a question of, are you nice or not? This is a question of how do you contribute to serving our clients and building our colleagues and communities. And there are lots of different ways to do that. And I am a strong believer in that we got to have diverse perspectives. We can challenge each other and be comfortable asking tough questions and all that. We can, by the way, do it in a respectful manner, which I think is a whole different thing. But we want a whole diversity of views represented in every aspect of diversity. And so you're looking for all of those attributes in the hiring plan. What I would highlight is often is different about everything I just said is I didn't say, I only want people who have spent 16 years in the banking industry and then this specific thing, right? Now, don't get me wrong. It helps if people have spent time in the banking industry, but that is not the only thing we're looking for. We're looking for a whole series of human characteristics that are in addition to experience because I can help people on the experience side, but if you didn't have all the other attributes we're talking about, they're a lot harder for me to develop. And so those are the sort of personal characteristics that I think are absolutely crucial, much less the more traditional resume characteristics that one might focus on. Are there particular questions that you routinely ask that are really important to you in terms of what you hear as answers? I always really like to hear a person's story. I specifically don't want the resume story. Whenever I ask the question, I say, please tell me your story. Tell me where you grew up. What kinds of things got you energized when you were a kid? Tell me the kinds of things that you continue to do since then that give you energy. Because what I'm trying to figure out is not, is the person smart or are they capable? Like I can read the resume. I can see a lot of that stuff. I'm trying to figure out who this person is as a human being. And some of the stories that are most inspiring are, of course, you get people who have overcome all kinds of challenges, right? And that's amazing to hear those people's stories. And I'm just awe of that. And those kinds of things really do demonstrate the attributes of all the things we've just been talking about. But you also, it's not just the person who picked themselves up by their bootstraps and made things. People can develop passion and resiliency in lots of different ways. So it's not a prescribed, I'm not looking for one type. But what I am trying to discern in this is what really jazzes people up. And you've done these, you can see people like their eyes get big, their hands move, they can't sit still, right? 
I'm trying to figure out in the interview what those things are yeah. so that if this person is going to be on my team, I can make sure that we're creating an environment where I'm going to get that same kind of passionate reaction. That's really what I'm trying to discern as I hear people's stories. Coming into sort of more the day-to-day, and I know there's no such thing as a typical day, but what's the mix of things that you try to build into your day? And how do you think about balancing the time that you spend on different things? So for me, the critical question that I'm trying to get through my day with is around what are the things that I am uniquely skilled or uniquely capable of doing? And I should do those things. And if I am not uniquely capable of doing it, then there's a real question of why am I involved, right? So some examples of this. I am uniquely capable of coaching my team one-on-one and helping them display the passion and everything we just talked about. I am uniquely capable of helping to inspire a large group of people who have, in our case, just joined because we've acquired their company, right? I am uniquely capable of watching my daughter dive. She's a fantastic college diver and I'm her dad and I want to be there for those things. I am not uniquely capable or skilled at sitting in a meeting with 30 other people where we're all going through a set of presentation materials. There are a lot Mm. of other people who are probably much better than that, right? I'm not uniquely capable of sitting in a committee meeting for a, a nonprofit that I care about, right? There are a lot of other people who can do that. And so for me, I'm constantly trying to discern what it is that I am uniquely capable of contributing. And by the way, it turns out, JR, there aren't that many places that I'm uniquely capable of contributing. And therefore, that means I don't have to work 24 hours a day. It means I get to do the things where I'm uniquely skilled and gifted and frankly, that give me the most energy. And it enables the people around me to rise up and truly believe that we're going to go the direction that they want to go because I empowered them, enabled them to do that kind of thing. Is there a time of day that you're most productive? So I try to manage my energy throughout the day. I think managing energy is more important than managing time. So I find for me, there's a certain set of routines that I try to get up relatively early, but not too early and exercise. And that gets me off to a good start throughout the day. And I'm pretty good if I'm making sure I'm eating properly throughout the day. I'm pretty good until dinner time. And then I'll sort of wind down and my family jokes constantly that I'm the first person in bed because it's going to start all the next morning. My 14-year-old particularly gives me a hard time about the fact that I go to bed before he does. But that's how I'm really trying to manage my energy throughout the day. And even when traveling, JR, I try to be as consistent with that kind of routine as I can, knowing you can't always follow it, of course. But the closer I am to that kind of routine, the more I am the best version of myself through most of that day, that enables me to be, I think, to give my best and to be most supportive of my team. I'm curious about this managing energy point that you made a minute ago. Does that translate into thinking about how many, I'll say, difficult topics or conversations that you build into your day and how you sort of intersperse things that are maybe a bit lighter, more fun for you to do? other than sort of eating right and sleep and things like that, how does it dictate sort of what you put in your calendar? In terms of the actual activities, look, I like to do more of the things that I like to do. We all like, but you can't always dictate that. And I have found by managing my energy in the way that we just described, I actually can take on a whole series of difficult things 
even sequentially, because I'm kind of in the right frame of mind. Now, you can't do that indefinitely and all of that. But I find that even in we had in the last several years to make some very difficult sets of decisions and about people, of course, which are always the most challenging, that to and then to communicate with those things with them. If I've managed my energy appropriately, I can be the best version of myself consistently, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Outside of your day job, right? You're also involved with growth company focused on supplying cultured meat, a far cry from the banking industry. How did you get involved with Upside Foods? So Upside Foods, as you say, is growing meat from animal cells and was the first FDA approved company to be able to be FDA approved in the US. The founder, it turns out, what used to be my neighbor and our kids and our families are very close friends. We, they went to the same school. His wife was on the school board with me and he is a Mayo trained cardiologist. And one day he came over to the house because they would always come over for dinner. And he said, if I can grow tissue in a lab to repair someone's heart, I think I can grow meat in a lab and we could offer that to the world. Now, he's a vegan, by the way. So this is a particularly interesting thing. And I said, Uma, that's a really big idea. We should start talking about that. And we've now been talking about it for seven years and you've made incredible progress. And it is one of the great privileges of my life to be on this incredible journey. How does working with a startup in an area as nascent as growing meat from animal cells help you in your career? What do you bring back to U.S. Bank in terms of the things you learn and the different experiences that you get, all of that? First of all, I would just draw the connection because it may not be obvious, but I would just draw the connection again to my sense of purpose. If I'm trying to help as many people as possible, banking is one way to do that. Feeding them is another. So these are pretty fundamental things in your life. I think the connection of purpose is really powerful. But what Uma and the team are doing, there are countless people in the world who say, that's crazy. That's impossible. No one could do that. And what it has helped me be is unbelievably bold and ambitious because whatever I'm doing, like pales in comparison to what they're trying to do. It emboldens me. It inspires me. And I hope, therefore, makes me a more effective leader at U.S. Bank because I'm trying to encourage our teams to do big and bold things also. And I know that those kinds of things can be done because I get to see it. Right? I'm seeing things that everybody else would have said, nobody can do that, they're doing. So yeah. makes me come back to US Bank and say, anything we put our minds to do, we can do too. Fair enough. And it's just an interesting space. Trying to get people to accept this as something more than science fiction, something mm-hmm. that they actually would buy right, and take home and eat. I have to imagine that team spends a lot of time thinking about how to drive acceptance for the product. No question. And I will tell you, having eaten it, it's delicious. And someone who is just, I'm an average consumer, I'm not a particularly sophisticated food person, but much of what they do is indistinguishable from anything that I would eat. I mean, it's delicious, looks great. You can see the pictures. I mean, it is truly remarkable. Yeah. Amazing. Going a step back. So you had a long distinguished career at McKinsey. The firm has changed a lot. It changed a lot in the time you and I were there and it's, you were there many times longer than I was. Do you think consulting has the same early career value for people that it did when you and I started there back in the 90s? Look, I think one of the really wonderful attributes of McKinsey and many consulting firms, right, is that as a young person, you are exposed to so many different situations 
and so many different people in a very short period of time. Now, you also work really hard during that period of time, but right. the sheer volume of people and situations that you see is you can't put a value on that because you just all of us learn from new and different people and situations. And that's what consulting is fantastic with. I also, and I think you were similarly inspired, I think that there is an element of noble purpose in mm. consulting, which is at its best, it makes a real difference in the lives of companies and communities. And I always felt very proud to be associated with McKinsey and to be able to do the things that really made a difference in the lives of the people, the clients we supported, the companies, the communities we were part of. So I think it's a great place to learn and grow. Not everybody has to stay as long as I did. My wife and I met at McKinsey and she stayed a much shorter period of time than I did. But I think we would both say that it had enormous benefits in terms of the learning and development and the difference, frankly, that you can make. I would imagine that you've used consultants in the time that you've been at U.S. banks. You've been on both sides of the table, so to speak. How do consultants add value today, given that there's just a lot more information available to corporate staff than there used to be? It's a very interesting question because you're right, the bar is raised, right? Because all of us have access to more stuff. But I think, first of all, all of us need, in any of our roles, we need support and new ideas, right? There's just because however capable any of us thinks we are, I'm always cognizant that the world around me is changing much faster than I realize and faster than I can keep up. And so I need lots of people, including external people, who can provide me ideas and perspectives because mine are limited in their own ways. So I think that's a hugely important value. And I continue to learn and grow myself because of those interactions. And I also find that it's incredibly important to have people who are thinking about very different problems than I am. Because it is one thing to, if you spend all of your day thinking about loans and deposits, which is what you do at a bank, you're not always going to think about how what you're doing is similar to or different than what's happening at a retailer or what's happening in healthcare, right? But there are insights from those industries that are extraordinarily valuable that I think are not just sort of bold, new, creative ideas, but hey, here's how consumers are behaving when they go shopping. Have you thought about how that applies to banks? I think those kinds of connections are extraordinarily important. So I value people who are not only thinkers and can help me adapt to a very changing world, but I also value people who can help me see connections across industries that because of where I sit, I might not be able to make those connections. When you came over to US Bank, having spent so many years in a consulting firm, was your transition an easy one or, or were there areas that were kind of shocks for you? It's very interesting, JR, because, and I suspect you found this as well when you transitioned into the corporate world, but as a consultant, you know your clients reasonably well, right? And I, at least, didn't appreciate how many things went on in their lives that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. Right. No exposure to. So for us, you and I both are in financial services. One of the things that one of the people groups, people you work with in financial services are regulators. So I remember it was like day two or three, I met the first regulators that I'd ever spoken to. And I, we introduced ourselves and I said, I'm delighted to meet you, but I want you to know that I have no experience working with anybody like you. And so I'm almost certainly going to screw it up. And so please tell me when I'm doing things right and when I'm doing things wrong and what mistakes I make so that I can learn from that. And so that's just one simple example of all of the things that go on in an organization 
that as a consultant, you have very limited transparency into. And for me, that's been a ton of fun, actually. It's been a whole new learning curve of things that I just, I didn't even know that I didn't know. And so I've learned a great deal about them, which has been great fun. Yeah, I certainly think back to my transition, which happened when I moved over to Fidelity. People I worked with back then would probably have stories to tell about those early days. I think you realize that when you're a consultant, you often get to work with people who are handpicked to work Mm. on these projects, right? And when you go into a company, you have to learn to make everybody better, right? Not just the star performers better. And there's a lot of things, to your point, that you get pulled into that the consultants never see, or certainly when you're a consultant, you never really have to deal with. And so it is a bit of an adjustment. I think I always aspire to have people not say, oh, there's still too much consultant in him, right? That transition to being an operator. You do a ton of nonprofit work. Where do you find the time? Well, so first of all, it starts with passion. I'll share a story because you were at the firm about this time. I've emphasized the fact that my sense of purpose is around helping people. And so you were in Chicago. I was in Minneapolis. And this is like the late 90s. And a call came in to the Minneapolis office from an organization called Catholic Charities. They're all over the country. And the board chair for Catholic Charities said, hey, we're going to do a strategic plan, would anybody in the mini, in McKinsey office like to do some pro bono support for us as we go through this? And the partners were all very interested in Catholic Charities, but they were too busy. And I raised my hand and I said, I'd like to do this. And I wasn't a partner at the time. It was kind of non-typical for someone who wasn't a partner to do this. But I said, guys, there's something you don't know about me. I was adopted from a Catholic Charities orphanage. And so from my perspective, this is not a random call. And I'm, so I'm going to go do this. I'm going to figure out how to do it. And what I realized, JR, in doing that is, first of all, I got this amazing connection to an organization that had helped me when I was homeless. And it also helped me realize that the skills that you and I were developing at the time of consulting had broad applicability in a way that I didn't realize right? And that ignited in me a passion that says, oh my goodness, I'm going to try to use these skills in as many places as possible. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. And what I have found, if I connect this back to the, what are things that I am uniquely capable of doing? Like I can help an organization through really nettlesome strategic issues. I can, I can do that. I can guide a team to analyze the right things, develop a set of recommendations, et cetera. I know how to do that because you and I have been doing that for decades. And it doesn't require me to go to all the committee meetings, which take up a lot of time. So I'm trying to find that thing where my passions and my skills intersect with the needs of whatever community groups there are and help them in, unique, in ways that I'm uniquely able to do. And I've just been incredibly grateful that so many organizations, including Catholic Charities and many others, have allowed me to participate in the kind of work that they do. It's an enormous source of joy. Obviously, there's some amazing nonprofits out there doing incredible work. For me, really my first exposure to the nonprofit sector was I was a partner. I happened to be in the elevator going down to the parking garage and got volunteered to go (laughs) lead a project with the United Way of Mass Bay, which was the Boston United Way at the time. And I learned a ton about the nonprofit sector in that project. The woman, the COO at the nonprofit kept saying, like, I don't understand why you're all spending so much time with us. Like, don't you have other things that you should be doing? And they were sort of grateful and a bit flabbergasted that we were willing to do it. And the CEO, who was this woman, Marion Hurd, phenomenal fundraiser. And you just realized, like, 
how the nonprofit heads are, many of them are always like, they're always in fundraising mode and it is always on experience. And she worked incredibly hard for a bunch of years, raising money for that organization. It was really incredible to see her in action. And it was definitely an eye-opening experience for me. Like you, I am inspired by so many of these people and the work that they do. And it's a privilege for me to be able to contribute in some small way to helping make them and their organizations more effective. A lot of people talk about getting onto a nonprofit board. What You've been on a lot. What advice would you give them for doing it? And what advice would you give them for choosing sort of where they get involved? So a couple of thoughts in this. First, got to be about passion. What you feel like you're doing is sort of checking a box. Don't do that. Find an organization that you're passionate about. And then figure out how you're going to roll up your sleeves in that. I love your example, JR, of how you and the team were spending so much time with United Way because you got a really big kick out of it. Find that thing at the organization that you're engaged with that you're really going to spend time on, that you just personally love. For me, I'll give you an example. One of the organizations that I helped start was an organization called the Itasca Project. It's been going for 20 years or so here in Minneapolis. And about two or three years ago, helped lead a task force. This is where I really rolled up my sleeves, led a task force with a couple of my dear friends here in town around what we called the first thousand days. Because what the first thousand days is about brain development in young children in their first thousand days. Mm-hmm. Turns out the science, it shows pretty clearly, if you get the brain developed properly by a whole bunch of factors during those first thousand days, that human being is going to have a good life. And if it doesn't work in those first thousand days, it's going to be much tougher, right? Well, this is a personal passion of mine. I spent the first 45 days of my life in an orphanage. Had I not gotten out within the next 45 days after that, JR, you and I wouldn't be having these conversations. And so that's the kind of thing where like, I really want to make that happen because I want other kids out there to have the same opportunities that I've had. So find that thing that's really going to jazz you up in that nonprofit and roll up your sleeves and make a difference just like you did at the United Way. How does what you do with the nonprofits play back into your role as a corporate leader? Well, banks cannot thrive unless the communities around them are thriving. Simple, right? And one of the great aspects of U.S. Bank is that we are deeply involved in communities all across the country. So at some level, I'm trying to help my community thrive. And at some, I'm trying to just encourage and support and be a bit of a role model for thousands of my colleagues who are doing similar things across the country. This is a big deal at U.S. Bank and frankly, at many organizations where we think this is just the right thing to do. And our teams love it. And there are countless stories on LinkedIn and other places that you can see where our teams with big hearts just get out there and make a difference. Yeah, which is great. Again, you're doing an awful lot, which is impressive. Would you describe yourself as being a gritty person? Do you feel like you've got a lot of self-discipline and persistence? It's an interesting question. You're kind to say that I'm doing a lot and it's impressive. I, it, much of it never feels to me that much like work in the sense because I'm doing things that bring me joy and help me energize me and that sort of thing. I think I'm pretty resilient because you can't have lived as long as you and I have without having lots of bumps and all of that. But mostly I think I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that I had so many clients when I was in McKinsey who allowed me into their lives. I'm so grateful that I have such wonderful colleagues here at US Bank. And I think that sense of gratitude is really important because I view the world, I'm grateful. And that means that I 
view the world as being abundant because I think there's so much to be grateful for. I also, being a religious person, I see a lot of God's grace and I'm very grateful for that. And so you might say impressive. I might just say humbling because I'm just feel really mm. privileged to get to be a part of all these things. How are you thinking about your own sort of growth and development? Like what's a focus for you right now in your continued journey? It's interesting. Somebody asked me the question the other day. They said, when you retire, whatever that is, what will you look back on and say were your great accomplishments? And I said to that person, I said, look, retirement for me, or that's just one step in the process. I hope I get to some old age and I can just look back and say, I helped as many people as I possibly could in as many ways as I possibly could. And so for me, that's the constant learning and growing is just to how to do more of that, JR, and how to, in as many ways as possible, at as many times as possible, to be able to do that. The learning for me is just how to get better and better at doing that. You sort of referenced it earlier, just having that growth mindset and all of that, and just continuing to focus on how you're learning, how the organization's learning. It seems like that's woven pretty deeply into the way that you think about life. Very much. And I think you made just a critical point there. I don't think about this as my career learning. I think about it as my life journey of which my work is a part. And I think it's really important to have, from my perspective anyway, I'm trying to live a life that is meaningful to me and makes a difference in the world. And a part of that is my work in in the traditional sense, but it's not the only part. What's ahead for you? Well, I hope more conversations like this. It's such a joy to reconnect with you and a lot of fun to talk about this. I'm honored and humbled that you would think about it. Honestly, every day is what can I do to help more people? That's it. And anybody who's got ideas for me, including you, I'm all ears. When you think back to kind of your early career days, what do you know now, right? The the years Mm -hmm. you and I have both accrued over the years. What do you know now that you wish you had known back then that you would want somebody who's earlier in their career to really take to heart? The single biggest lesson for me, JR, that I wish I had known was not to get fixated on the traditional markers of career development. I remember vividly in, I've been a senior partner for probably two or three years or something like that. And I didn't get two roles at McKinsey that I thought I should have gotten. And I was really upset about it. Those were the traditional kind of career ladder sorts of things. And I was talking to my wife about it, who didn't have a lot of patience for my irritability. And she said, I don't know why you're so upset about this. She said, every time you go to the meetings of those various groups, you don't come back happy, you come back grumpy. In contrast, whenever you do some of this learning and development stuff, you can't stop talking about it. Why don't you not do some of the stuff that makes you grumpy and do more of the stuff that makes you happy? And that set me off on a trajectory of the next 10 years of doing all the kinds of learning and development stuff we've been talking about, Jair, and some of the most fun and exciting times. So don't get focused on those career ladder things. Get focused on the things you love doing. You mentioned uh, Adam Grant. You mentioned Carol Dweck. Are there others whose work or books have particularly influenced the way that you think about work and life? Yeah, several. I'm a big fan of Dan Pink. I think some of the insights he has about motivation are fascinating. Emily Esfahani Smith, I think, is great in terms of sense of purpose and Mm -hmm. meaning. Bob Keegan, I think, has done some of the most outstanding work on how to reduce fear and get the most potential out of people. Bob Chapman, who's a CEO living out this kind of thing, have been real inspirations to me. As those are kind of thought leaders, people who do TEDx talk kinds of things who have been real inspiration. Of course, I have many dear friends along the way, but those would be the kind of public figures out there, if you will. 
Good. That's a good list. Some of those people I'm less familiar with, and I will have to go learn a little bit more about them. Last question. Any other career lessons that you'd want our audience to take away before we break? One of the harder ones for me has been to find joy in mistakes and realize that they are learning opportunities. That mm-hmm. if the more you can frame any mistake or quote failure as a learning opportunity, the more quickly you can do that, the faster you grow. Yeah, it's very true. And certainly that's one of the key points that Carol Dweck makes in her book, exactly in her work, that you have to look at these things as learning opportunities. So that book, certainly the takeaways from it really have resonated with me. And it's always good to talk to other people who have read it and appreciate the kinds of things that she's done her research on over the years. Yeah, very much. Well, Tim, thank you. I appreciate it. You've been very generous with your time. I know you have many things going on. It's fun to catch up. I've learned a lot from talking to you just about how you think about things. And as we talked about before we started officially, one of the biggest reasons why I do this. So I'm grateful for the time you spent and and wish you well. Well, thank you. And I'm honored that you're reached out to do this. It was a joy to be with you. And thank you for doing this really good work. I think this is really important stuff. Honored to be a part of it. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks. I'd like to thank Tim for joining me today to discuss his career journey, what he's learned along the way, and the guidance he would offer to aspiring leaders. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.